John, lead pastor, Noel Peepcrass. Welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plan started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. We'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in our historic building at 218 Pine Street. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or visit our Instagram page. Thanks for listening. You know, as we were singing this morning, um, <clears throat> I, I thought it was so interesting and apt that we, we sang a song that, um, that was Jesus' words, Come to Me. And then uh, the very next song was us singing to the Lord, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And I think that's so appropriate, isn't it? There's a way in which Jesus calls us to come to him. And then there's a way and there's a time and a place where we call out to the Lord and we say, Lord, you come to me. And so it's in that spirit, I think, that we gather this morning, you know, um, needing both to uh, receive the invitation of the Lord and also to call upon the Lord to come. We can do both. Jesus honors both, I believe. So... We, we just started uh, studying the last two chapters in what I told you last week. Uh, commentator Dale Frederick Bruner calls the Christ book, the first 12 chapters of the book of Matthew. So we got to set milestones so we know we're at along this journey. Matthew has 28 chapters. Uh, we're in chapter 11. We've been going for a year, and we're in chapter 11. It may take us a while. I'm not sure how long exactly it will take us. But we're setting a little milestone here. We've got two chapters left in the first half that Bruner calls the Christ book. And uh, that's significant uh, because, uh, especially in these last two chapters, we see these portraits of Jesus. And if you remember last week, we talked about John the Baptist coming to Jesus with the key question, who are you, Jesus? Who are you? And this is the key question in the last two chapters of this so-called Christ book. Who is Jesus? And so we see these six portraits in these last two chapters uh, that give us uh, some information about who Jesus really is. Uh, in the first part of Matthew 11, last week, the passage that we studied, we saw Jesus double down on his claim to be the Christ, the Messiah sent from God to rescue his people. And we saw that, yes, uh, John, the first believer, right? John, the first believer, as I called him, he had his doubts, didn't he? And we saw that the masses missed Jesus altogether. But nonetheless, Jesus showed us that by his life, through his words, and through his deeds, he in fact is and was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that had promised his coming. So today in Matthew 11, verse 20 through 30, we're going to see two more portraits of Jesus that help us answer the question, who is he? The first portrait that we're going to take a look at today is Jesus, the judge. Judge Jesus. And Asher, you can go to my slide, my nifty little slide here. I, I thought of Judge Judy. You know, did anyone grow up watching Judge Judy? Well, we got Judge Jesus uh, this morning uh, in these first five verses, uh, verses 20 through 25. This was the section that Cassie struggled through because it, it lists all these weird names, you know, these names of town like uh, towns, and I, I was telling Cassie earlier this morning, like, for some reason, like, the only other language I've ever been trained in besides English is Spanish, 
But it's like, when, so when I get to these names, even though they're like, I don't know, Aramaic or like ancient Israelite, you know, uh, Hebrew names, I, I pronounce like Chorazin. Like, it's like my Spanish, that's all I, that's all, that's my go-to. I don't know if that's right or not. So, um, you know, to me, it's, it's Chorazin and, and Bethsaida anyways. Uh, so what are these towns and what is Jesus up to? Jesus, it seems, is getting pretty uh, assertive in this text. Woe to you. When's the last time you said, woe to you? Maybe never. I don't know if I've ever said woe to anybody. But Jesus comes in this passage and and he says, woe to you. The first thing that we learn about Jesus the judge is that uh, Judge Jesus, Judge Jesus actually brings conviction. Judge Jesus convicts you guys. Like, Like, look, there's a real physical consequence to our sin. We, we live in a world, even, even a Christian world, that in some ways has lost sight of or wanted to ignore the judgment of Jesus. And I would say to you today, guys, that, man, Jesus loves you for sure. Jesus loves me. But Jesus is also uh, a God of judgment, not just love and redemption, We've got to know this Jesus and his judgment. We cannot ignore it. We've got to understand it. Did you know that, uh, that no biblical figure used the word woe more than Jesus? Jesus used that word more than any other figure in the Bible. I thought that was interesting. He says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. So this modern concept of a Jesus who, who does not judge sin and rebellion, it's unbiblical. The Jesus of the Bible came to judge. And it's actually Jesus in his love for us that comes to judge. How loving would Jesus be if he did not come to judge evil? A loving God has to judge evil. So we have Jesus presented as judge in this passage. Also, judge Jesus, Jesus, that's a mouthful. I didn't realize it would be so hard to say. Judge Jesus. The one who brings conviction. Not only does he bring conviction, but he brings warning. The woes bring warning. Again, another demonstration of his love for us. To warn us of the destruction that's ahead if we don't repent. So Judge Jesus comes and he brings the woes on Chorazin and Bethsaida. Did you know that uh, Matthew, Matthew's gospel, the author of Matthew, he heard Jesus preach judgment more than the other synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke. Quite a bit more times in, in uh, the Gospel of Matthew do we hear Jesus talk about judgment. Do you remember Matthew chapter 3, where we, way back to the start of our study in the book of Matthew, we talked about John the Baptist, uh, he came, and, and what did John say? He didn't say, hey everybody, Jesus loves you. <clears throat> the first thing John said was, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. So this message of judgment, we've got to take it seriously. That's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. Jesus came as a judge. That's not incongruent with his love for us. Actually, it's absolutely inherent to his love for us that he would come to judge the evil and the wicked of this world. That's what a loving God does. Have you ever been wronged or had somebody close to you wronged? Like there's that desire in your heart to see justice, is there not? I think that's a godly desire, something that's been put inside of us. And so a just God must bring judgment on evil. It's in his love that he, that he comes to judge. 
If you're, uh, you, you noticed uh, Cassie moved on from the names uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Those are towns in ancient Israel, uh, towns in ancient Israel. But then he, he mentions Tyre and Sidon. So what's up with Tyre and Sidon? It says in this passage, Jesus says in this passage that if Tyre and, and Sidon had seen the miracles that he's just performed in chapters 9 and 10, we heard Matthew talk about them. He says that Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they had seen these miracles. But you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, have not repented. These towns are, are to the north of Israel. Tyre and Sidon are actually Gentile towns. They're pagan towns. So what does that tell us about who Jesus is talking to in this passage? And how about Capernaum? Capernaum was Jesus' hometown. Not the town he was born in, but the town that he made his home most, uh, uh, much, most, much, a lot of his miracle activity happened in Capernaum. We've seen and we've read these stories again in just the last few chapters of Matthew. So what, uh, what about Capernaum? What does it have to do with Chorazin and Bethsaida? And then what about Sodom? You're probably familiar with Sodom. Sodom's that old, uh, that old town that you heard about in uh, the Old Testament, right? That was terribly wicked. So wicked that God burned it down, right? And that's the story where Lot's wife is walking away and she's not supposed to turn around and look, but she can't help herself. She turns around and looks and she's turned into a pillar of salt. This is Sodom. Sodom is like a, a biblical symbol of, of sinfulness and wickedness as a result of this story that's been passed down through the ages. So here Jesus is talking about three towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum that are all a part of Israel. They're a part of the nation of God. And then he lists three other towns that are Gentile and or completely rebellious and wicked like Sodom. And what does he say? He says, you who should have known, you who should have been the first to receive me and my miracles have rejected me. Even Sodom would have repented is what Jesus says in this story. Even Sodom, known for its sin, rebellion, and wickedness, would have repented. Here's the point. The point is that we have no record of Jesus preaching judgment uh, to pagans. Jesus' judgment was first and foremost in the Gospel of Matthew for those that should have been the in crowd. The Israelites, his chosen people, these are the people that he's coming after. He only preaches judgment to those who thought they were in. And we've been learning this about Jesus. We've been studying Jesus' ways his ways of reaching out to those that we would have figured were on the outside. The lepers, the, uh, the broken, the Gentile, even women. Jesus was reaching out to those on the outside. And, and we find often that those who are on the inside actually rejected Jesus. Those that we would have thought would have received Jesus have actually rejected him. And so we find that judgment, you guys, is not a message for Gentile pagan people the judgment of Jesus is for the people who should be on the inside. It's a, it's a message for spiritual people. I believe for Christian people. The message, the warning, the conviction of judgment. It's for you. It's for me this morning. We're the ones. Those of us with our butts in the seat on Sunday, we're the ones who this message of judgment is for. It's not just a conviction. Remember, it's a warning, and we should take it seriously. Jesus uh, he calls us to repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. 
And, and you know, it's Jesus in his kindness. It says in Romans 2, it talks about the, it's a kindness of God that brings us to repentance. Isn't it kind of God to lead us out of our wayward, destructive path and into repentance? It's his kindness that brings us to repentance. See, the point is not that, uh, it's not, the, the point has not been the miracles that Jesus actually did. The point is, has change happened? What is repentance? Repentance is not just confession of sin. Repentance is not just I'm sorry or I messed up. Repentance is turning away from, right? Repentance is changing the way that you live and following a different way, the way of Jesus. And so I'd ask you the question. I think Jesus was asking the question. He was posing the question to these people. You've heard. You've seen me. But are you changing? Is your life being reoriented around my ways? See, Jesus' presence without change, it can lead to a damnation deeper than Sodom's. That's what Jesus would say. Even Sodom would have repented if they've seen what you've seen. Even Sodom would have repented if they've seen what you've seen. There are no eternal rewards for being born into a Christian family, you guys. There's no eternal rewards for... uh, for being near Jesus, for coming to church every Sunday, whatever it is that makes you feel like you're a part of the family of God. There's no eternal reward for that. There's eternal reward for repentance and obedience. The entire heart of the gospel message is repentance. Repentance from the sin that leads unto death. Turning. Turning from a life of sin and turning towards the grace of God. This is true repentance. The whole point of Jesus' miracles was repentance. The whole point of what Jesus was up to, his words and his deeds, was repentance. Changed lives, obedient lives. And Christians especially need this message, this message of judgment. Matthew 7, you'll recall, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Man, those are, those are like hard words designed to soften our hearts towards God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus said that. Jesus said that. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, he says in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The message of judgment is a judgment for spiritual people like you and like me. See, everyone can have Jesus. Jesus is accessible to all, but but Jesus has only those who are by his grace actually changing their way of living. You know Jesus has your heart when your life is changed. When you see the fruit of repentance in your life, you know that you belong to Jesus. The needy, the hurting, the broken, you guys, they get grace. They get the unmerited favor of Savior Jesus. But the in crowd, those who have experienced Jesus' presence and fail to live a life of repentance, get the conviction of Judge Jesus. This is what we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Look, my job as your pastor is uh, to convict the unrepentant, right? I think that's one of my jobs, to convict the unrepentant. And then my job is to comfort the repentant, right? To convict the unrepentant and to comfort the repentant. Look, there's judgment here this morning for any who have heard the gospel and yet continue in an unrepentant life. 
And this is why Jesus calls these woes out to Bethsaida and Chorazin, to Capernaum. He actually says, Capernaum, no, you're not lifted up to heaven. You'll go down to Hades. This is uh, strong, strong language. But there is comfort here this morning for those that would acknowledge their sin and turn to God. And, and this is the good news about the judgment of Jesus. It's, it's actually his kindness that, that convicts our hearts and brings us to repentance. In the next section uh, here, uh, verse 25, 26, 27, we see Jesus, again, another portrait of Jesus. We see Jesus as God revealed in the Son. It says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Several things out of this little chunk, you guys. Uh, first of all, isn't it interesting? Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned. It seems as if Jesus is praising the Father for the rejection that he faced at the hands of those that should have known and recognized him. Jesus had a, a, a high view of the sovereignty of God the Father. He trusted God's ways. Enough so that even in his rejection, he could thank God that his sovereign plan was being carried out. This is powerful. Even when God doesn't act the way that we think he should, do we trust him to be sovereign? Do we trust him in his plan? Do we trust him in his love for us? Jesus is a great example of that. Speaking of the sovereignty of God, I, I had to mention it. There, there's a tension in Scripture that you may notice here in this passage. And I'd be re remiss if, if I didn't mention it. There's this tension between election, which is God's choosing us, right? And then our free will, like our response to God. I think that tension was on display with the song choices, right? Uh, Jesus says, come to me. It's an invitation. It's a call to response, right? But then we also cry out, Lord, you come to me. It's both ways, us coming to God and God coming to us. There's this divine like partnership at play here. And so we see, if you've ever heard, some of you are familiar with like the doctrine of election and there's, you know, there's different ways to look at it. And what I want to say to you this morning, you guys, is that there seems in Scripture very clearly to be some combination of God's choosing and our responding. It's both. God chooses us. He's done it. He initiates relationship. He initiates our justification. But then we also have this free will, and I think God in his love for us have given us a choice, a choice to choose him back. And so we see this tension uh, between um, his choosing and our own personal responsibility. And I wanted to point that out in case you're wondering what is going on in this passage. The second thing in this chunk I wanted to point out is, is the posture that Jesus is looking for here. Jesus is looking for a posture that's not like uh, proud in our wisdom and our own intelligence, but it's actually very childlike. What does he say in, in verse 25? He says that the Father has hidden these things from the wise and learned. Now, is Jesus against wisdom? No, right? Scripture teaches of true, biblical, godly wisdom. But what is true wisdom? True wisdom, biblically speaking, is understanding that I'm a person in need of a Savior. Wisdom turns to pride when our knowledge, our intellect, becomes self-righteousness. 
And so this is what Jesus is speaking against in this uh, passage. He's inviting us into a posture to be more childlike. There's no criticism of intellectuals here. There's no criticism of knowledge or true wisdom. There's criticism here of the proud and the arrogant who believe in their hearts their own self-righteousness is what saves them. We find further the wisdom of Jesus in Matthew 18, and and this will really make it make sense. And I know that many of you are familiar with this uh, verse. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 3, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is a little child like? A little child trusts. A little child is naive, not not puffed up with pride or like knowledge, with intellect. And so Jesus says... And he teaches us here that biblical wisdom steps low. Biblical wisdom is like the wisdom of a child. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. It might be fitting to turn and look out the window at the little children for our cue of how to be. (laughs) That was mine. Okay, he's squatting now. You can't see Harper like I can see him. Anyway, all right, bring your attention back here, back here. The plan of both Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the plan of the great God, you guys, is fellowship with little people like you and me. This is God's plan, fellowship with little people like us. Proverbs 3, 34 says this, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, 2 It says this, this is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in spirit. So biblical wisdom is is humble. Biblical wisdom is contrite. Biblical wisdom is like a child. This is what Jesus is calling us to. The wise and intelligent, they foolishly depend on their native insight, their own ability to understand over God's revelation. Their wisdom comes from themselves, and it's actually opposed to God. This is the great divine paradox that the holy and high one is closer to the low and the little than to the high and mighty. The last point here in this little chunk that I wanted to make is just that Jesus is the source of all divine revelation. Jesus is the key to divine revelation, it says in this, in this chunk that Jesus has come so that we might know the Father. This is a high Christological claim of Jesus. Don't forget this. This is Jesus saying, I'm the one. He's claiming to be the Son of God in this passage. He says that, he, that he's come that we might know the Father. He's the chosen Son of God. And, and in such, he's the one who reveals the Father to us. So Jesus is the key. He's the source of all divine revelation. So that brings me to the last point. Jesus is the Savior. This is the the next picture of Jesus that we see. We've seen him as Messiah at the beginning of chapter 11. We've seen him as judge. We've seen him as son of God. And now we see Jesus as the Savior. This is a powerful passage. 28, 29, and 30. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this picture of Jesus. 
Jesus. Did you know uh, the name Jesus uh, or Yeshua in, in Hebrew? Uh, it's also another name uh, for Jesus is actually Joshua. Right? You guys have a brother and a son named Joshua. That name, that word, means salvation. It means Savior. Jesus was aptly named. So the third portrait that we're looking at today in chapter 11 is Jesus the Savior. And I love the way Jesus saves here. Let's look at these next three verses as a picture of how Jesus saves. I love how he, he calls us by invitation to himself. Gently, come to me. There's like a contrast between Jesus the judge and Jesus the Savior, isn't there? Jesus the judge didn't sound all that humble and gentle. Woe to you. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. But here we see this picture of Jesus, the Savior, who's humble and gentle. <clears throat> the first thing I want you to notice is there's a certain kind of person that's invited to Jesus. Jesus saves the weary and the burdened. Jesus saves the, the weary and the burdened. Just as in the previous paragraph, only a certain kind of person was rebuked by Jesus, the in crowd, here in this section, only a certain kind of person is saved by Jesus. All who are weary and burdened, Jesus says, come to me. Jesus invites only those who are having a hard time of it. Anybody out there having a hard time of it? Jesus says, come to me. It reminds me of Matthew 9, uh, verse 36. Um, you'll, maybe you remember this. It says in Matthew 9, 36, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus' heart, you guys, goes out to those who are serious but discouraged. If you find yourself this morning weary and burdened, join the crowd and come to Jesus. His salvation is for you. Then Jesus gives this metaphor next, this yoke. Now, we don't, uh, we don't use yokes, I don't believe, in, in much in this day and age, unless we're doing fun little like uh, carriage rides, you know? But the yoke was like probably something that they would have been very familiar with from an agricultural perspective. I think I have a picture of a yoke, Asher, if you go a couple slides ahead. Um, so th here we go. This is a yoke, right? We familiar with this? So it's interesting that Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And then the next thing he says is, take this yoke upon uh, you. That's strange. A yoke is for work. It's like an inch. I mean, these animals are pulling heavy things and doing hard work. What's this yoke got to do uh, with, with my relief from being weary and burdened? It's like uh, they need like a bed or a vacation, you know, like not a yoke. That feels strange to me. But Jesus recognizes that the most restful gift he can give these tired people, the most restful gift that he can offer us is a new way to live. More than you need a vacation, you need a new way to live. Anybody feel like they need a new way to live? Anyone ever needed more than a vacation? Have you ever, have you ever like related to, to vacation? Like it's so much work getting ready for the vacation and then you go away on vacation and then you come back and you got to catch up from everything that you missed while you were gone. I've thought to myself sometimes, like, I don't really need a vacation. I just need to get on top of my life. You know what I mean? I need to spend one week 
not like away. I need to spend one week getting my life in order so that the rest of it goes better. You know what I'm saying? Jesus offers us a better way to live. His yoke, a better way to live. And uh, it's cool because this way that Jesus offers us, he's going to later call it the, the light yoke, the easy yoke. So let's figure that out. What, what does that mean, you know? What, is the, what does the, the light yoke of Jesus mean? <clears throat> I think one thing that Jesus means is that obedience to his high standards, his, uh, remember, his Sermon on the Mount standards, like, again, like, not exactly, like, feeling easy to me, anyways. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus, like, one of the things Jesus said was, like, was, uh, uh, don't commit adultery. You've heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery, right? That was the Old Testament law. Well, that's hard enough in and of itself to not commit adultery, right? But then Jesus went on to say that I say, do not even look at a woman lustfully. So is Jesus' way of obedience like all that easy? His standard is incredibly high. And some have said like, well, Jesus is talking about his light and easy yoke because the Pharisees were proclaiming a yoke that was really burdensome. And maybe that was true. There was all kinds of things that people had to do, you know, like religious acts and rituals that had to be performed in order to receive forgiveness. But man, Jesus, Jesus, uh, he has high standards. Really high standards for us. He goes on to say, because I'm gentle and simple at heart. He's low key, he's humble, he's laid back. This is the Jesus that we come to. Again, not the Jesus I was expecting when he started proclaiming the woes. There's this contrast that we see between the woes Jesus and the Jesus that's humble and gentle. And I think it stands in contrast to the teachers of Jesus' day who were known for being super strict and disciplined. In fact, that was a measure of their own pride, their strictness, their rigidity, the difficulty uh, that you would have to follow their way was something that they took pride in as teachers in that day. In fact, in Matthew 23, we'll get there someday, Jesus actually rebukes the Bible teachers for being hard to bear. He says, you're laying heavy burdens on the shoulders of others and being unwilling yourself to lift a finger to help them move them. So what does Jesus do? What does the light yoke of Jesus look like? Jesus offers his presence. He says, come to me. And I will help you live a lighter life. A life free from the burdensome way that you're living. Jesus doesn't offer the vacation that you don't need. Jesus doesn't offer a heavier yoke. Jesus offers a lighter yoke. Demanding, yes. But demanding in such a way that will actually lead to rest. You know what I mean. Like you, You've done this kind of work, the kind of work that makes life easier. And then after you do it, you're like, ah, why, did, why didn't I do that sooner? I've been doing things the harder way for so long because I didn't want to take the effort to get things lined up. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. There's a better way to live. It's actually a lighter way to live. And this is the appealing promise of living with Jesus' light yoke, that there's, there's rest for your souls. How many of your souls need rest? We're busy. I'm busy. I assume you're busy as well. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that you are. Most people say, how you doing? Like, oh, I'm so tired, right? Isn't that the thing that we say? Oh, life's been so busy. It's just crazy right now. 
We're like in a perpetual state of busy and tired and worn out. Man, rest for our souls. That's something that we really need. And Jesus says, come to me, and I'll give you the rest that you really need. I asked myself, or I found myself asking, how can it be that living according, according to Jesus hard and narrow way is light and easy? How can this be? Jesus, you said that the road is narrow, that the road is hard. We, we just learned in Matthew 10 all the terrible things that are going to happen to us when we're on mission with Jesus. How can it be that following you is light and easy? How can it be, Jesus, that it's actually restful to my soul? to take upon your yoke. And I think that we have to be a bit careful here. We have to be careful not to fall into the trap of believing that Jesus came and offered a lower standard of discipleship. That's one of the things that I think that we've done over time, maybe even in in, in this time. Like Jesus didn't come and offer a lower standard of discipleship. Again, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look upon a woman lustfully, You've committed adultery with her in your heart. Jesus' standard of discipleship is not, like, permissive. Not at all. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. His standard is higher than the standard of the Old Testament law. So Jesus' way, we can't, we can't just fall into this trap of believing, like, oh, Jesus, light and easy yoke. Therefore, uh, I sleep with whoever I want to, grace. I drink whatever I want to drink, grace. I act however I want to act, grace. I'll show up on Sunday. That's not Jesus' light yoke. That yoke is not light. That yoke is heavy. The yoke of that lifestyle leads to destruction, and Jesus would say, repent and come to me. Take on my yoke. It's the way of living. It's like a yoke. It seems like work, but it'll actually make your life easier. It'll actually produce rest. You'll actually live when you take on my way of living. This is the yoke that Jesus offers to us, and it's brilliant. Jesus is uh, a brilliant man. Understated, I know. So this is the beauty of the gospel, you guys, that in Jesus, with Jesus, under the yoke of Jesus, life is actually easier than the harder way of living outside Jesus' yoke. The hard, difficult yoke of Jesus is actually lighter easier living than the yoke of sin and death. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that Jesus' narrow, hard road, it leads to life. The narrow, hard road leads to life. It leads to rest. It leads to true living. This is the beauty of the gospel, you guys. And, And if you find yourself weary and you find yourself burdened, I would offer you the light yoke of Jesus. The yoke of Jesus gives rest to the soul. It brings true life. So again, I I ask you this morning, anyone here carrying a heavy yoke? Anyone weary and burdened by life? Raise your hand. No, sorry, I might not do that. Anyone here uh, cast down, downcast, put down, set back, brushed back, discouraged? Anyone? Beat up a bit by the way uh, life's been going? Tired of your way of doing it? Anybody want to be under this light yoke? Sometimes it feels impossible 
that life could get restful, that something could change, that something could shift. But if it could, who would want to be under that yoke? (laughs) Who wants to be under this light yoke that brings rest to the soul? Who's tired and ready to let go of the heavy yoke that they've been trying to carry? The yoke of performance, the yoke of measuring up, the yoke of earning, the yoke of striving, the yoke of merit, the yoke of what have you done for me lately, the yoke of keeping up with the Joneses, the yoke of never being enough, never having enough, always running out, always on empty. Anyone tired of that yoke? This morning, the the words of Jesus call out to us. He's standing here. His invitation is for us. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. As we respond uh, now in in worship um, and by receiving the Lord's Supper, I I just want to invite you guys seriously this morning. Like It feels a little bit like we're back in our our living room to me this morning, Um, you know, like I know all of you pretty well. Um, uh, it's like you guys all like are part of that crew that comes pretty regularly. And like Noah was saying earlier, like I already know everybody. And Megan was saying like, oh, you're already on the church center app. It just seems like a great opportunity to have like a living room moment this morning. And I, I just, I wanted to invite you to uh, come forward for prayer if you feel like you're weary and burdened. You're looking for that light yoke of Jesus And so as we respond uh, today in worship and we come forward to receive the Lord's Supper, um, if you can say in your heart, man, I'm tired, I'm burdened, I'm done, come receive prayer. I'd love to pray for you this morning. Okay, Come receive the light yoke of Jesus. Maybe I can help you get there. Maybe we can help each other get to this light yoke of Jesus uh, this morning, the light yoke of Jesus who saves. See, the fact is that the eternal God sent his son Jesus Not that we'd continue to bear our own burdens, but he made a way for us to be made right with him by grace, through faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. This Jesus, our Savior, he's gentle, he's humble in heart, he's ready to receive you today. Picture Jesus standing right here, he's ready to receive you. He says, take my yoke, upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and it's his kindness if you feel convicted today if you feel convicted of not living a repentant life Jesus kindness the same Jesus who says woe to you says come to me this is his way of saving that invitation and it's for you this morning don't miss the opportunity to come and receive freely the light yoke of Jesus. I'm available uh, to pray with you up front. I'll even turn my microphone off so no one hears what you say. Uh, Jake, you can go ahead and come, and then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us, God. And in your love for us, you told us the truth about our condition You weren't afraid to uh, risk relationship by bringing us your woes. In fact, they're they're a means to deeper and greater relationship, Lord. And we're we're thankful that it's your kindness that draws us to repentance, Lord. And God, we just, uh, this morning, I I just want to repent of like 
living in such a way that uh, refuses the rest that you have to offer. And Lord, I pray that um, we would receive this morning your invitation into a light and easy yoke. I pray that you just uh, strip down any barriers or walls that would prevent us from coming to get prayer this morning, to just admitting to someone else like, hey, I'm, I'm super weary. I'm just tired, burdened, Lord. <clears throat> I pray you'd free us up to come to you this morning, Lord. Amen.